Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, airing on KCAW. I'm your host, Ellen Frankenstein, with Lisa Bush and Tiffany Pearson. And we're excited to be here at Harbor Mountain Brewery with a live audience. We're here in Klingadani, the ancestral homelands of the Klingad people, with respect and gratitude for this place and the people who have lived here and told stories since time immemorial. The theme tonight is Siren Songs, Stories from Below the Waves. It's a celebration of Sitka Whale Fest, a collaboration of Art Change, Raven Radio, and the Sitka Sound Science Center. I'm Lisa Bush, the executive director of the Sitka Sound Science Center. And first, I want to say thank you. First, thank you to Harbor Mountain Brewery for hosting this event. Second, to the storytellers who are courageous and fun and willing to share themselves with us tonight. And then my last thank you is to Ellen Frankenstein, who puts these events on. She is truly a community gem. Let's have a round of applause. Um, and then finally, I wanted to say something science-y, um, and that is that um, studies show that storytelling is actually one of the most effective ways to communicate. And that is we actually have a physical reaction when we hear a story. And when we hear a good story, we feel something. And that could be happiness, that could be sadness, but we're feeling. And to me, that is really the beauty of storytelling in so many ways. But also storytelling connects us as human beings. And really, that is what makes life so beautiful. So thank you in advance. One more thing about storytelling is listening is a really big part of storytelling. So thank you for being listeners. Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> Excited for the six stories we have for you filled with wonderment, curiosity, and uncertainty, and of course, waves. Tellers for this episode are Chance Gray, Tori O'Connell Curran, Charlie Skolka, Ivan Gruder, Andrew Roseman, and Matt Wilson. So appreciative of the tellers and everyone who has made this event possible. Okay, are you ready? Our first teller for tonight is Chance Gray. He grew up in Alaska, discovered diving in college, and sometimes that goes great. And sometimes it doesn't. Take it away, Chance. I have a major fear of drowning. And in general, that might seem kind of normal, but I made the strange decision of becoming a diving instructor. And that has taken me all over the world, but it always brings me back to cold water. I love the challenge of it. Everything has to be more deliberate, even your breathing. It takes focus to slow down your heart, slow down your lungs, slow down your body. And that focus, it brings you to that one moment. And you have to be present right here, right now. And it is just meditative. When you are learning to dive, they teach you about the possibility of running out of air and how to manage those situations. But the reality of that is very different from the training of it. I had a dive 
in the kind of early days of my diving career in Monterey, California. And it was just me and the dive master. It was a perfect California day, the stereotypical California that we all think about. Not a cloud in the sky, hardly a ripple on the ocean. And it was actually even better underwater. We were diving in this huge kelp forest and that dense kelp created this moody feel underwater with these intense light just penetrating through the kelp. And if you looked up and around, you would see this, the stipes of kelp created this loose maze that we were swimming through. And when you looked out, it made these windows of just intense turquoise blue. We were about 45 minutes into the dive when I signaled to the dive master that I had half a tank. And on a normal dive, that's about the time you turn around and start heading back to your exit point. And so far, this was a pretty normal dive. It was an amazing dive, but it was, it was normal in most ways. And as we're heading back, I started to realize that my dive master was lost. And I wasn't a very experienced diver at the time, but I think we all know the way that people start looking around differently when we're lost. And the way he kept checking his compass, I just knew like deep in my chest that he was lost. Fortunately, around that time, this really playful harbor seal started circling around us and, and playing and it distracted me a little bit. And eventually he signals it was time to go up. And as we start ascending, I lose track of this seal and start focusing on what's above me. As we came to the surface, we were right up against these cliffs. They just towered above us. And we were close enough that the swell was bouncing off the rocks and sending waves back towards us. And there was my, that seal surfing in those waves coming straight at my face. And at the last minute, veering off to the side. And I gotta tell you, this was not our exit point. <laughs> the dive master told me confidently that we just had to get around the next point and we'd be back at the beach. I told him I had a thousand PSI left, so just about a third of a tank, and we descended again. And we're swimming along and he's still looking pretty lost. And I'm trying to stay calm and patient. And this seal is doing its best, swimming around us, distracting me. And eventually he signals that it's time to go up again. And we surface and we're in cliffs again, towering over us. Waves are bouncing back in our face and that seal is surfing those waves too. I showed him my gauge. I had 700 PSI left. We're getting pretty low on air. He insists that we just have to make it around the next point to get to the beach. And we descend again. And it didn't take long after that. As we descended, I breathed in and breathed out, breathed in and breathed out. I breathed in, nothing. I had run out of air. I looked down at my gauge and it still read 700 PSI. I looked over at the dive master and I signaled that I was out of air. And I slowly let myself drift to the surface as he looked at me confused. 
And when we got to the surface, he looked at my gauge and it still read 700 PSI. And my tank was definitely empty. I had gear that was old and faulty and hadn't been serviced very well. And he looked at me blankly. Then he deflated his BCD and disappeared below the water. <laughs> and a couple minutes later, he popped up on the outside of the kelp bed. And the feeling of abandonment in that moment <laughs> was inconceivable. I stared for a minute or two, and then I started swimming. I crawled over top of that kelp. At times it was so thick that I was lifting myself out of the water with all of my gear on. And I started noticing that this seal was popping up in the least dense areas of kelp. And I had nothing better to do, so I started following the seal. I kept thinking she was going to get bored and leave, but she didn't. She stayed with me until I got to the outside of the kelp, and I was furious by the time I got over the last strand. I had no words for that dive master for the swim back to shore, or the ride back to the shop, or while we cleaned gear, or while he tried to explain why he had abandoned me. But to this day, it has changed how I teach people to dive, how I teach them to take care of gear, how I teach them to navigate. I had a dive that was full of peace and calm and fear and anger, and I had one incredible experience with a seal. Thank you. Thanks, Chance. Let's welcome our next siren song teller, Tori. Tori O'Connell Curran is a retired fisheries biologist. She lives in Sitka for 45 years, and you always see her with her grandchildren, Theodora and Freya. Who would have thought a degree in fisheries biology would lead to an Esquire Magazine Bovine Achievement Award and a shout out by David Letterman on the Tonight Show segment, Dumb Pet Tricks. But life can be strange. I'm Tori O'Connell Curran, and for many, many years, I worked for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game Groundfish Project. When I first started, groundfish was seen as pretty inconsequential to real Alaska fisheries. And so I was given, as a newbie, the job of uh, doing a stock assessment for yellow-eye rockfish. And yellow-eye are this big, beautiful fish that lives in really rugged, rocky habitat. And for a lot of reasons, they are very difficult to assess using kind of typical survey methods. So being young and also from New Jersey, I decided I would go for something really big and unlikely. And I applied for a very competitive national award to get a two-person submarine up here to look at rockfish. And I got it. Yay, yes. <laughs> but then I got worried. I didn't want to spend my first couple days on this very expensive cruise getting used to the submarine because, you know, I was tough and everything, but geez, what if I got claustrophobic? What if I got seasick? What could I see out the ports? How could we keep our science rigorous? So somehow I talked my way onto someone else's research cruise that was going before ours. And Dr. Ken Krieger worked at the Bay Lab of National Marine Fisheries Service. And he had 14 dives. And after talking to him for a while, he very nicely gave me permission to ride along and do one of his dives. And this was extremely generous of him. And it worked out so very well for me, and I'm not quite sure how it worked out for him. 
we were going to dive on his cruise to look at short spine thorny heads in deep water off southern Baranoff Island, offshore of uh, Sandy Bay and 500 feet. So the submersible is, it was invented and it was operated by Dr. Rich Slater, who's a geologist. Go geology. And... (laughs) And if you picture the little, um, the Beatles uh, yellow submarine, um, and you take away the periscope and you take away the blue meanies, you got Delta. (laughs) It's about 15 feet long, six feet tall. It's rated to have, uh, it's rated to a thousand feet. It's designed to have two people in it, but occasionally we've had three looking at Lisa Bush. (laughs) And the observer lays on the uh, floor of the sub and looks out the front or the side ports, and then the pilot sits on a little seat above you and looks out the coning tower. The sub can be quite peaceful. There's a little CO2 filter, the little whirr of the motor, and I think I said that Ken's dives were long. They were three hours long in soft bottom. And soft bottom, I don't want to say it's unexciting, but it is a little slow. You know, you might see a sea pen, you might see a flatfish, you're not seeing a lot. And I will be the first one to say I have a very short attention span. And I often have to pee, especially if there's no bathroom. (laughs) And newsflash, there is no bathroom in Delta. (laughs) So two hours into this dive, I was really struggling to stay focused for Ken. And all of a sudden, I hear the pilot, Dave Slater, say, what the hell was that? Maybe not something you want to hear when you're in a bathtub toy on the ocean floor. And I look quickly at the starboard port, and I was expecting to see a giant kraken, and instead I saw a hooved animal. And so I had been motoring along with fish flashcards in my head, and I have to quickly shift them out to barnyard animal flashcards. I stumbled a bit in that. And so I said, it's a horse or something. And Dave is like, no, it's the carcass of a sheep. And then I realize and say, it's a cow. Holy cow. <laughs> and I really did say that. Chandler was a toddler, if you know Chandler, and I was trying really hard to clean up my language. So that is all on audio and video. And yes, there was a black and white cow on the seafloor being grazed by sea urchins. And since then, I've done about 600 dives in Delta, and I can honestly say that that was one of the more unusual things we had seen. So word travels really fast. We get back to port. There's a lot of news. I'm getting a lot of calls from media, a lot of buzz there. Conspiracy theorists are crawling out of the woodwork, asking me if I, and I'm not lying, I do exaggerate, but this is not one of those times, if cookie cutter like cuts around the genitals of this animal, because aliens have been doing weird stuff to cows in the Midwest. And then a very, very nice researcher from India called me to reassure me that cow carcasses are fairly common off the coast of India. And then there was an elaborate gag in town that four of my friends did where they took a a plywood black and white cow cutout and hung it upside down underneath a children's saucer that they put a strobe in. And they were yarding it back and forth across Lincoln Street in front of my house. So generally a circus. So imagine if you're a Ken Crater and you're doing this really important cutting-edge research and the story becomes the cow. And the biologist that saw the cow doesn't even work for your agency. My bad. 
So I think at this point, oh, and I really did win an Esquire Magazine Bovine Achievement Award. But I was runner up to the woman who was sitting in a porta potty at a rodeo when a cow ran through uh, the fence and got his horn stuck on either side of the porta potty door with the woman in it. So she totally wins. So I've run over time, but I don't really have any words of wisdom, just like immense gratitude that my life is interesting. I have world-class colleagues, friends, and family. And this silly but true story has really helped engage many, many SICA students in the complex work of fisheries stock assessment. So thanks, Ken, for giving a gal a chance. Rest in peace, Rich Slater, you are missed. Holy cow. <laughs> I also have to say, holy cow. And I want let, to let you know, does anyone want to see the video of the cow? Yes. Okay, so we just posted it. Go to the artchangeinc.org website. Go to Sitka Tells Tales. Look for Siren Song. And you can see the video that shows the cow. You know, I've been organizing Sitka Tells Tales for a long time, and this is the first cow on the bottom of the seafloor story we've ever gotten. But now, let's welcome Charlie Skulka. Charlie has been called a lot of things in life. A surfer is just one of them. He didn't find surfing, it found him. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you, Some some tough stories to follow. Um, yeah, a surfer is just one of them. Um, if you can imagine, I, I I started surfing quite a while ago, and you see it a lot on TV, and you see it in the magazines a lot, and uh, really not as easy as it looks. And, and my first attempts were actually pretty comical, and I, I still laugh at them. But over the years, I, I'd get the opportunity to convince people to, to go out surfing with me, and um, started to get a little braver and going further and further outside. I remember one year, um, I, I was fortunate enough to find this beautiful little speedboat, so I bought it for my wife. And she was really surprised when I bought it, brought it home, I mean. But, um, but it was great for going out surfing, but it wasn't really ideal for the outside. But uh, I had convinced this one young man from, from Sheldon Jackson to start surfing with me, and we, we went out to this real notorious area for just boating, and uh, out by a place called The Wall. Beautiful, beautiful foggy morning when we were getting ready to go out. And it was a new boat, so it didn't have anything on it other than a motor. And we took off across from, uh, from Stargabbin, and, and the visibility was about 10 feet. So I had this, this survival knife with a compass on it. We got up on step, and I figured we were going about 20 miles an hour, and if we stayed on course, we would literally run into inner point in about five or six minutes after we got on step. And uh, we did have a flasher and we were running along and running along and I was watching the 
the clock and, and right about the time I, I figured we'd run into inner point, we uh, ran out of water almost, so we turned. <laughs> and then started following the coast out and, and we got near, um, near Shoals Point. It wasn't like nowadays where there's GPS and these apps and stuff. We'd heard that there's a swell coming and, um, and we were just taking a shot on it. And, and there, there was a swell when we turned up there or ended up there, but we, we couldn't make it through the pass. So we, we went around and um, all the way out and around Vitscary and, and then came back in from, from the south and, and anchored up and caught some really nice waves. And, and as the fog broke, it, it got even nicer and we're just having an amazing time surfing. And, and after we got all played out, we, we got back in the skiff and, um, and, and started looking at the pass and it looked like, it looked fine. So, so we, we, we started driving towards it and, um, and caught a big set and followed it through and it didn't look like the set was gonna break. So I dropped down over the face and punched it and, and started racing ahead and got about halfway through the pass and looked back and it was like Hawaii Five-O. <laughs> so I, I just luckily just got on it some more and followed the wave in front of me all the way through and went around the corner and quickly lit up a cigarette and was just hot boxing it. <laughs> and, and the kid that was with me said, wow, that was really cool. Do, do you always do that? And I said, well, you know, sometimes when I'm feeling really ballsy, I'll slow down and pull into the barrel. And he said, really? And I said, oh, hell no. You know how lucky we are to, to be alive right now? And uh, he says, oh, man, I didn't realize that. And we were sitting there just enjoying the day, and he says, wow, there's some whales over there. I've always wanted to go see whales. So we start going over by the whales, and, and we get more than close enough and kill the engine and we're drifting around there and the whales are doing their whale thing and and we're doing our gazing thing and pretty soon we see some breaching and that's really cool and pretty soon we don't see anything so so the kid goes up on the bow of the skiff and he's really watching and sits down puts his legs over the over the edge and and up comes a whale like two feet in front of us and just blows whales not and breaths all over the place and um and of course he jumps up and comes running back to the back of the boat and is just oh my god oh my god did you see that I said, well yeah i said i i, I saw that and uh, <laughs> and i said you know most people got to wait a lifetime to get a native name, but I think you just earned yours today. And he said, well, what is it? And I said, well, of course it's whale breath. And, and I'm going to stop there. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks, Charlie. That was pretty impressive. I think Shoals Point is the place where all the ballsy surfers go. And I think we have two of the ballsiest surfers in Sitka in the, our attendance here. So that was awesome. Um, our next guest is Ivan Gruder. He was born and raised here in Sitka. He's always lived near the ocean. He loves surfing and enjoying the ocean. So 
Welcome, Okay. Um, yeah, surprisingly, there's a lot of surfers here in Setka. Charlie, awesome story. I've been out with uh, Charlie a few times. It's always a blast. There's quite a few uh, group of us surfers here in Sitka, and um, we often get together and think about the waves and talk about it and go out surfing. Usually, one of us is always looking at the, the buoy report and the weather and the storms, and somebody always knows when the waves are coming. So this story is uh, going to be about um, surfing some really cold waves around here in Sitka. And um, one day I, I was watching the weather really close and I noticed that it was going to be really good. So I called up my buddies, group text, and nobody could go but one guy. One, one of my buddies, Jake, was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go. So we met up on the boat the next day and when we head out and on the way out, you're always looking around and you can see the the waves breaking on the rocks and you know it's going to be good and you start getting really pumped and excited so we get out there and there's um, another boat anchored up in the same spot and we're like oh that's unusual because there's usually no crowds around here and we talked to the guys and there were a group of coast guard guys that like to surf as well so they're like yeah we're here to surf too so okay so we all jumped in there's about five of us and it was a really good day at the same spot as uh, where charlie likes to go not far from here about an hour boat ride and we all jumped in and surfed for couple hours and got really good big waves it was just perfect it wasn't like small but it wasn't huge but it was really just really fun and we we're just jacked I think everybody got barreled that day and got tubed and super 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 stoked after about two hours we we're getting pretty cold usually about two hours with our six mil wetsuits it's about time to get out and so we uh we all started getting out got back to the boat and got out of our suits and put our warm gear on we are sitting there hauling the anchor, and I, I, we are still pretty pumped up about the whole excitement of the surfing, and I looked over at my buddy Jake, and I said, hey, you know, there's still some waves out there. Maybe we could, uh, maybe we should catch some more, and this boat that we're in is kind of like a giant surfboard. Why don't we go try to catch a wave with the boat, you know? <laughs> Have you ever done that? And he's like, no, and he, he didn't say no, so, <laughs> so, like, all right, so we, um, motor over to the point where the waves are breaking and uh, we got to the takeoff zone. Here comes a pretty good sized wave and we give it some gas and we take off and let off on the throttle and pretty soon we're just cruising down the wave with the boat. You know, we're just, just cruising down and we're just looking at each other like, whoa, what's the, and, and we knew that we had to, there's a spot there you have to pull out of the wave, otherwise it's just gonna break and just slam you into the beach. So right before you get to that spot, you just pull out and you're safe. And we, we did that, and was, we just looked at each other. We're like, whoa, that was so cool. We're surfing in a boat. And, uh, well, let's do it again. Uh, I, I asked him, and he's like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do it again. That was fun. So we, we go back out to the point, and another wave, and we, we catch it, and we do it again, and we catch it. And this time went a little bit farther, and um, we went a little bit too far. Uh, <laughs> it started closing out and we could see like the barrel coming but we pulled out just in the nick of time before the wave just crashed onto the way onto the rocks there and we we got we looked at each other we're like whoa that was just a little bit too much you know and <laughs> but we were still so pumped up from the whole day of surfing we we just kept we like i think we could do that again you know let's and he he didn't say no again it was like supposed to be here anyways and uh, <laughs> and so 
we uh, motored back out to the spot, and this time a bigger wave came. And it was uh, probably like an eight-foot face, which is a good-sized wave. And we gave it a little throttle, and we took off, and we went, and we went a little bit too far. And uh, we tried to pull out, let off on the throttle, and it just wasn't working. We just kept surfing. I couldn't steer out of it. And um, all of a sudden, the wave broke. It happened so fast. It flipped us up in the air. And in midair, it flipped the boat completely over. And Jake got thrown out of the boat, like, really far. And I was still hanging out of the wheel going like this, just, and slammed into the water. And then it was complete darkness. And it was... And I luckily I got a big breath of air because practice surfing, I guess, and got a good breath of air. And it got really dark and uh, kind of chaotic with the waves and everything hitting. And I was trapped under this boat. All of a sudden I was like, this is a really bad situation. Like I'm stuck under this boat. I couldn't get out. I was really trapped. And so I, I knew I had to do something. And all of a sudden I could still, think of this really clearly in my head, I was thinking, wow, this is not the way I'm gonna go today. Like, I'm not gonna die like this. So I um, just calmed down. Everything got really calm all of a sudden, like everything slowed down and I could just tell that it was gonna be okay and I knew I could hold my breath for at least, you know, a minute or so. And everything slowed down, it was almost like slow motion. And it just, I knew what I had to do and I reached down and I realized that my leg was tangled up with some of the controls and I, so I reached down and it was complete dark. I was doing all by hand, by feel. I cleared my leg out of the way. Meanwhile, we're getting slammed by other ways. And I got my leg out. As soon as I did that, I was wearing a flotation coat and it, it lifted me into the inside of the boat because was, it was working against me. It was floating me into the boat. And then I was trapped up against the inside of the boat. And then I was like, wow, this is just getting worse. Like, by then it was probably like a minute, you know, like, man, I'm like, I'm, I really need some air, you know, and, uh, but then I just kept feeling my way, you know, I'm like, I can do this, I can do this. And I felt the, the inside of the boat and I just reached over and grabbed the railing of the boat and I just pulled as hard as I could and I got my head out and then I just pulled even harder and finally my body went around the, the side of the boat and then I just came flying out of the water like, like a cork coming out of the water, just popped out of the water. And I looked around and I, I saw Jake over there and he looked at me and was like, wow, I am so glad to see you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> and he, uh, and he was like, he said, I just went down like three times looking for you and I couldn't find you. And uh, yeah, but luckily I, I came out of that one, made it just barely. And uh, we kind of looked around and we saw there was stuff floating around everywhere. And we picked all our stuff up and threw it up on the beach, tied the boat off. And then, um, yeah, so luckily we had a, another boat nearby. The other guys that were there, they came in and, and rescued us. And we got on their boat and they gave us a ride back to town. <laughs> so yeah, I'm really glad that, you know, sometimes you gotta take big chances and uh, calculated risks are good, but we learned a lot that day. We just went a little bit too far. <laughs> just a little bit too far. All right, thanks. Who was kind of gasping during a little of that? I think there's something about Ivan that he's really calm. 
And I know, I think Jerry Dugan, who runs, who ran AMSI, is in the audience, and that's like part of the seven steps of survival is being really calm. Um, wow. So I'm, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I don't know. It's interesting to know when we've gone too far. Uh, are you inspired by these tales? You know, we welcome new tellers. This is not a club. It's an open thing. If anybody is tempted to tell a story for in the future, we have a sign-up sheet back there. So please, keep in contact, because uh, we love hearing new people. Because this is, it was your first time telling a story, right? And you survived. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can also email artchangeinc at gmail.com if you're all tempted or have ideas for other themes. But now, it's time for our next Sirens song teller, and I'm really excited about this. Andrew Roseman, he's been in Sitka for two years, and whenever he, leave, he leaves, it bites him in the butt. <laughs> Andrew. Okay, so I don't really have any water-related stories, unfortunately. But thinking about these under the waves, tales from under the waves, I have a story from the past month of my life that was, I've titled Waves of Misfortune. There was just a lot going on. And I also, you know, I feel like I don't have a lot of stories around my life. I'm very like present focused. So it's perfect that I have the story, you know, that just happened to me. And it all begins exactly one month ago. I'm returning from San Francisco. It was my first time. I was visiting my roommate. It was so much fun. I got off the island. I was just woo, having so much fun. And I went a little too hard. You know how it is. And um, I came back, you know, and I was having some bowel issues that were not really fun. But I was just like, you know, I didn't get much sleep. I was just doing a lot of things. And so I just, you know, whatever. And then at the end of the week, my throat started really hurting. I was like, okay. So then I went to urgent care and they did a COVID test and I came back negative. And they're like, well, do you have strep? And I was like, I always, like I, every year I get a sore throat. It's never strep. My sister always gets strep. It's not strep. Let's not even do it. And he's like, let's just do it. I did have strep. And then um, they're like, do you want to do amoxicillin or penicillin? Penicillin is just a shot. Amoxicillin is like for the week. I was like, let's do penicillin. Just one and done. And so I got the shot. I'm on my way. Next day, I feel so much better. My sore throat is gone. I go to work. And toward the end of my shift, my feet start killing me. And I had gone to the gym and I ran. So I was like, maybe my shoes didn't have enough support. I don't know. But I was leaving. I could barely walk. I called my mom. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> And yeah, so I was about to go to bed. I like took off my pants and I have red spots all over my legs. They don't itch, they don't hurt, but I'm like, what is actually happening? And so I'm like, it's a penicillin. I'm allergic to penicillin. Uh, I started freaking out. And so I called the nurse advice line. I was like, oh my God, what is happening? And they're like, just come in. It was 1130 at night. So I called my friend and I was like can you please take me to the ER because I don't have a car and so he took me to the ER and I was like oh I could barely walk at this point I was in so much pain my legs were hurting so bad um and I yeah went to the ER and they were like well you're not having an allergic reaction we don't know what's happening they gave me prednisone which is a steroid and at that point I had to be wheelchaired out of the ER because I literally could not walk um 
I also have neglected to mention another important part that's happening currently to all of this is I'm moving out of my apartment, which is also very stressful. And the housing situation that I was going to move into that week, it fell through. So I did not know where I would be living after I moved out of my apartment. Um, so yeah. I am taking the steroids, I feel so much better, but the next day it's happening again. So I go to primary care and basically see my doctor and she doesn't know what's happening either. Um, but she looks at everything, she does some research. I have to like now move out of my apartment. And by this point in the week, I literally could not walk. It was like so bad. And due to some circumstances, you know, I was the last one moving out of my apartment. So I just had like a lot to take care of and it was just wild. I like cried harder than I've ever cried in my life after that day. It was just like awful. And then my doctor the next day was like, okay, I think you have IgA vasculitis, which is a rare um, disorder that happens after an upper respiratory disease, usually in kids, but it happens in adults sometimes. And basically my blood vessels in my legs were inflamed and bursting. And that was also happening in my arms. My legs were like so painful and I had arthritis in my joints. I was just crazy. Um, but they gave me uh, steroids, which were helping. And then into the weekend, I started developing stomach cramps. And, you know, colitis is a side effect of vasculitis. So I was like, oh, God. Um, <laughs> so then I'm like up all night. And like basically as soon as whatever I ate through the day hit my colon, like I am up. It feels like I have to go to the bathroom, but nothing happens. And this just progresses. I'm like, I can't. I don't know. Basically by, I think it was Sunday, I'm like throwing up and you know, just everything is happening. I go to urgent care and I was like, oh, I had to bring a bowl cause I was like throwing up. And they're like, well, do you have COVID? I was like, no, I don't have COVID. I like, I have vasculitis and I have strep and like, I don't. And they were like, well, we need to take a COVID test. I was like, oh my God, like I am like, I was rocking like I was and so they take the COVID test and I have to wait 20 minutes and then I have COVID and so I was like oh my god um and basically that's where my story everything starts getting better from there um I took some time off from work and I was working remotely and um my boss helped me find housing which was beautiful and wonderful so I have a place to live now um the vasculitis cleared up I got over the COVID I moved out of my place I moved into a dog sitting place that's where I had to move all my stuff so I was having to walk dogs as well throughout this whole ordeal it was just all this was happening and so to wrap it all up, moral story, I just feel like I learned. Oh, and my mom came up from Illinois to help me out. Yeah, I just accepted a lot of help from my friends. And it's important to, you know, sometimes, you know, when it rains, it pours. I felt like it was pouring in my life for a minute, but I'm all better now. I got to see my mom. I got a lot of support from my friends. And that is my story. Wow, Drew, that was impressive. I mean, I think a wave of misfortune was accurate. Um, and I think we can all relate to that story too because I know we've all had similar stories. Maybe not as bad, but um, thank you for that. Our next and last teller is Matt Wilson. Matt Wilson is an aquarist and he spends a lot of time underwater and is going to tell a story about that.
I'm an aquarist, and that means that I am a marine biologist that focuses on marine animal husbandry. So I do a lot of work with animals. Uh, I work at the Science Center, taking care of all of the animals that we have down there. And uh, the story that I have is kind of a culmination of a lot of the things that I've learned over the years. And a couple of years ago, I was a consultant for a children's museum down in Washington, and they wanted to do a whole Puget Sound exhibit. And part of that was going to be a tank that uh, showcased local marine life. And I thought that a great idea for that would be to have a wolf eel. So a wolf eel being about an eight foot long animal, uh, with a head the size of a bowling ball, capable of flattening crabs and urchins like nothing, big, ugly, wrinkly faces, but they've got the personality of a puppy. So they actually fantastically work for a children's environment. So it just so happened that a friend of mine posted a photo of a wolf eel, a very young one, about probably around a year old, if that, uh, at a dive site that we know really well, but it had this terrible head wound. It had basically looked like somebody took a melon baller to its head. And we were thinking, well, it's probably not going to do so well out in the wild. You know, maybe it might not even survive at all. So maybe the best chance is for us to collect it and rehabilitate it. And then it's this animal that's got this wonderful story tied to it as well. And we help out an animal simultaneously. And so we get together and we're planning our dive. And the problem with this is that it's about 100 feet down. So it's right at the edge of about standard scuba diving. We've got about 15 minutes that we can spend down there to collect this animal. And so we get down there and it's not a great day out. It's pretty murky down there. And it's in this mud bottom where there's a pipe stuck halfway down in the bottom and it, the wolf eel is living in that. Fortunately, we get right to it. We know right where it's at. And we're trying to coax it out with our nets, see if we can just get it to come forward so that we can, you know, bag it and get it back up to the surface. But it's really not wanting to cooperate. Five minutes goes by and all that's happened is it's slunk further back into the pipe. And so we're trying to get further in there. But the more that we try to work, the more that we're disturbing the bottom and pulling all that mud up into our vision so we can see less and less the more that we work. And as we're continuing to try, the, the minutes are counting down. And I realize we've only got a couple minutes left. And this is really the only shot that we have at getting this animal because we're, we're doing so many different things and we don't have the equipment to do this again. It's now or never. And so I decide I'm just gonna reach my entire arm into this hole and I'm gonna try and coax this thing out. And so I reach in and I'm digging and I'm just scooping mud out with my hands just to try and get behind this animal to get it out. And now I can't see anything at all. So I'm scooping, I'm scooping, I'm scooping. And finally, all of a sudden, flashes in front of my mask is a tail. That's all I can see is a tail that goes by. And I know that the wolf eel has come out, but I have no idea where it's gone. And I don't know what's happening around me at all. And so I just try to get out, out of the mud cloud just to see what's happening. And I get out and I look over at my partner and dive buddy, Brie Gable there. And I see her over there with the wolf eel, not in a net, but in her hand. <laughs> And the wolf eel has her in her jaws because the wolf eel's clamped down on her hand. 
And so I swim over as fast as I can to try and get this thing into a bag. Fortunately, it does come right off, and it's only about a 12-inch wolf eel. Uh, if it was an adult, it would have broken every bone in her hand, but instead it was just like a pair of ice grips. Still left a good bruise. Uh, we get it into a bag safely. We get back up to the surface. We get back to the museum, and we realize that this animal is in pretty rough shape. It's pretty skinny. It definitely hasn't been eaten well. It's, of course, got this terrible head wound and everything. We get it on some antibiotics. We clean up that wound as best we can, but it's really not wanting to eat on its own. It's still super stressed. We're trying every possible food item, and it's not wanting to eat. We're trying to force feed it, but nothing's staying down. And so I reach out to some uh, colleagues at uh, Port Townsend Marine Science Center. Awesome, awesome people. And this wool field has continued to degrade over all this time. And it's like our last chance. And I'm like, can you take this wool field and just put it in a nice quiet place and try and get some food into it? Because we didn't have the facility to work on this very well. We're in a children's museum. And so I finally convinced them to take it. They're like, we don't know. We've never had a wolf eel. And I'm like, I'll coach you through it. Don't worry. So they take it and immediately starts eating nice live shrimp and everything completely turns around over there. And a couple months later, they're like, we don't want to give her back. She's amazing. <laughs> and so her wound had really started to heal over really, really nicely. And finally, we're like okay, we need her back. And she comes back to the museum and immediately just clicks right back into the exhibit like she'd always been there. Just perfectly settled in, really social, and it worked out so, so well. And to this day, she's been in that exhibit about a year now. She's now over three feet long, and she's always up in kids' faces. She loves to come out and put on little displays for everyone, and it's made such a wonderful story, and it's like the culmination, like I said, of everything I like to do. It's like I'm I'm helping animals, I'm connecting people with animals, and it all worked out perfectly for us that time. <laughs> Who wasn't grinning when Matt told that story? <laughs> if everyone felt that connected to what they do, think of what a great world this would be. Yeah. And they were paid well. Sorry, I don't want to be too social justice-y. But thank you. That was a great story, Matt. Um, I want to give a huge shout-out to all our storytellers for bringing Sitka Tales Tales to life in person. Chance Gray, Toriel Connell Curran, Charlie Skolka, Ivan Gruder, and Roseman, and Matt Wilson. I want to thank Harbor Mountain Brewery and Campfire Pizza for making food and beverages and this space available to us. To the Sitka Daily Sentinel on the Soup for helping us get the word out. Our timer, Rachel Thompson. Our photographer, Leon Claire. Our tech help here, Ellie Campbell, with support from Becky Myers. And some extra gear from Gene Stolberg to Dave Emmer, who edits our shows and gets them ready for podcast and use in the future. And we appreciate everybody who comes out live and to the people who listen to Sick of Tales Tales on Raven Radio, and it's just been so awesome to collaborate with the Sitka Whale Fest and the Science Center, and we want to do it again, and we appreciate working with Raven Radio. Thank you.